0: Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, team. Well, good morning, church. How are you? Good. It is good to see you here today on a rainy Sunday. Uh, And before we jump in for today, uh, hopefully you have all heard by now, but sadly we have had to cancel uh, trunk or treat today. Uh, and look, no one is more disappointed about that than I am. I love this event. Uh, we're looking forward to it. But uh, look, there's just a lot that goes into this event more than even just the trunks. And so, had to make the painful decision to cancel up for the day. And look, this is only the second time in 15 years we have had to do that. So, that's a pretty good run. Uh, but with outdoor events, uh, sadly, these are going to be the things that happen periodically. But if you created a trunk, just think about it you don't have to make one for next year. Just bank that thing, right? Put it in your garage, right? Set that thing there, and you're all ready for next year, because we will be doing this next year. Uh, and I, I have had people ask me, "So, well, what about the candy? Uh, because you gave candy, right? And you did. If you would like your candy back, you can have it. Uh, it's still in a bag. We didn't need it or pilfer it for the best kinds, except for that one bag. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, It's over here in room two. So if you'd like it back, you can pick it up. Whatever we doesn't get picked up, uh, we're going to donate. We're talking to some of our Give United partners, uh, and so King's Home is doing an event in a couple weeks. Grace Klein, some others, uh, we are going to make sure we donate that so we can get uh, given out uh, and used in a worthy manner. But if you would like that, uh, don't feel any guilt about that. It's right over there, in room two. You can pick it up as you're leaving uh, in just uh, leaving the service here in a few minutes. But thank you for all of you who signed up, and we're ready to go. We'll be back on it next year. Uh, But let me tell you about something that is going to happen that. we will not cancel in two weeks. Now that we're getting Halloween behind us, we can move towards Thanksgiving. Uh, and in two Sundays, we're going to have our annual Thanksgiving feast. Uh, look, Thanksgiving is time where we typically all travel or people travel to you where you get to celebrate with your family. Well, before you go and do that, we want to celebrate as a faith family. And we're still at a size where we can actually pull this off. So we're going to fill the whole table with rooms, uh, with tables, rather, fill the room with tables. Uh, and then we're going to have, there you go, you, you knew where I was going. All right, so I think that happens more often than I actually know because y'all laugh and I don't know why you're laughing. Uh Am i Am like going, I, don't, I know what I thought I said. Anyways, look, um, look. we're going to fill the room with tables and we're going to have the full Thanksgiving spread, turkey, dress, and pumpkin pie, the whole mix. Uh, and look, this is a great place for your community group. They say, hey, we're going to go get a few tables. We're all going to settle together and have a fa- Thanksgiving feast together. If you said, I'm not a part of one, hey, come and be a part. Invite your neighbors, invite your friends. Come sit at tables. Let's celebrate as a faith family. We're just going to celebrate a meal together. Uh, some of our kids will be singing for just a few minutes, but really it's just a time for us to, to celebrate and give Thanks to the Lord together. It. It's really a lot of fun, but we do need you to sign up for it. And so you can use that QR code. You can go on the website, uh, but we do need to know how many people to prepare for. Uh, and so make sure you sign up if you want to come. We do need that RSVP, but it's going to be 5 p.m. in two Sundays, uh, November 13th, right here in this room. And I am excited that rain or shine, we will be having our Thanksgiving feast in just a couple of Sundays, all right? Uh, but now grab your Bibles if you will. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Matthew thirteen verse forty is where we 'll be in just a few minutes. Matthew chapter thirteen verse forty is we 're continuing our sermon series on worldview. Uh, And look, this is a weird type of series. We've already been here a while, but look, we we could have done twice as much. There's so much to say we're trying to to cram in here, but it's important to know what we believe about ourselves, about life, about who God is, about our our purpose, about what life is for, because that is going to inform all of the things that we do. So we've been looking at what we believe as believers. Uh, And after this week, we're going to kind of shift to kind of addressing some of the concerns of the world. Uh, but it's important that we kind of look to God's word that he gets to define for us what life is all about. Matthew chapter 13, verse 40 is where we'll begin in just a second. As you're turning there, let me ask you this. I wonder if you've ever broken something that you could not fix. Is it for having you before? We break things, right? I mean, it's going to happen. Accidents happen. You break things. But I wonder if you've ever broken something you cannot fix. Sometimes you break something, you can patch it up, right? It's fine. Other times you break something, you can't fix it, but you can replace it, right? So you say, hey, I can't fix that thing, but I can't give you another one that is equal to the one that you lost. But sometimes we break things that cannot be fixed. I remember the first time I felt this feeling. Uh, I don't remember how old I was. I was probably six, seven years old. Uh, and at my house, uh, there was this little glass candy jar. My mom would put some hard candy in it, uh, but it was all stuck at the bottom. And I had that thing opened up and I was just smacking it, trying to get that hard candy out. And once one of those times I smacked it and I just, I just I, I broke it, I shattered it. And that whole base just came off of it. And as a kid, you know you're in trouble, right? You just broke this thing. I didn't cut myself, but this thing is broken and I can't fix it. But when my mom came in to see it, uh, she began to cry. And I I hadn't seen that a lot. And I was like, ooh, I must really be in trouble now. What's going on? Uh, And it wasn't just that I had broken this thing and that it could not be fixed. It was that it had belonged to my late great aunt. uh, And it was in her house. And you can't fix that. You don't get that back. There isn't another one. You can't replace it. And so it was an irretrievable loss. And I remember that feeling, that's a sickening feeling to realize, hey, I'm sorry, but I can't fix what has been done. And sadly, we're going to need to kind of lean into that feeling this morning as we talk about an uncomfortable topic. We're going to talk about hell. Uh, Last week, if you were with us, we talked about heaven. And I don't always ask you to say, hey, please go back and listen to the one from last week. But these really are companion sermons. So I hope you go back and listen to the sermon we talked about on heaven extensively last week. But the counterpart to heaven is hell. And we need to understand both of them. These are the eternal destinations for us. We, we don't simply have a life in this world. We are going to live forever and we will either live in a renewed heaven and earth or we are going to live in hell. And all of us are on a trajectory to one of those two places. So it's very important for us that we actually understand what these places are and their purpose. But let's be real honest. This is an uncomfortable topic. If there is any part of Christian theology that we wish we could just strike off the books, it's this one. If there's anything that we could just say, hey, I don't have to believe that part. You get one pass, right? Of just one piece of theology you don't have to believe. Most people would say this. This is the sticking point for a ton of people when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ. You may have your own doubts or concerns, Or you may have friends who have doubts and concerns. Students, this is going to be one of the biggest things you wrestle with in your generation of people saying, listen, I just don't think I can believe in a God who would allow or even send people to an eternal punishment. If that's who this God is, I don't think I want to have any part of him. If that's the kind of God you serve, I just don't think I'm on board with that. And look, I think all of us have wrestled with that at some point because it's a a hard thing to contemplate that a sizable portion of humanity is not going to be in the new heavens and new earth, but instead will be in hell. So this morning, I cannot possibly explain all of the texts that deal with hell. I have been knee-deep in all of the hell passages for a week and a half. It's been terrible, right? Uh, But And look, there's so many things. I can't possibly answer all your questions, but I think we can at least get the broad contours to help us understand what this place is and why it exists in the first place. And look, before we even go any farther, what we've got to do is dispel some of the improper views about hell and the devil. Last week of you here, we found this a problem with heaven. We realized that there were some pictures in our heads that weren't terribly accurate. You know what I realized after last week? That a lot of my pictures of heaven and hell come from cartoons. Is this true from anybody else? Like it's cartoons, like the little people on your shoulders, right? Or the people in the robes, right? Or the little devils running around. I mean, like it's cartoons that give us these pictures. But if we're not careful, we'll actually think that's the reality, but that's exactly what the Bible says, and it's not. We found that out about heaven last week, and the same thing is true about hell. Let's start with the devil. I want you to picture the devil for a moment, right? When I say the devil, right? A little picture shows up in your brain, so capture it, look at it, right? And look at the picture of the devil. I'm going to go out on a limb here and describe who you're seeing right now. When I say the devil, you're looking at a little figure who has horns. He's red. He's got a tail, It might be forked, or he's holding a pitchfork, right? There's probably wings involved, right? And he lives in like an infernal bat cave, right? Like he's like a little place where there's fire and stalactites, and and we got all this going, on, right? We got a new lighting package put in this week. All right, so (laughs) so, you got to use these things, right? So uh, there you go. Uh, So this is kind of how we think about hell is this this weird little creature. And, And here's the deal. That is not who the Bible depicts Satan to be at all. Very quickly, let me demog these. All right, does the Satan have horns? No, the, the Bible doesn't say anywhere really about his appearance. He's a fallen angel, but nowhere does it say he has horns. Where do the horns come from? It, this could either be from the, uh, the pagan god Pan, who did have horns, uh, that they kind of get imported into the devil. Uh, I know Satan is really used a lot with goats. Goats have horns. Uh, and so that might be the place where they put horns, but he doesn't have horns. Is he red? No, Satan is not red. Then where do we get that? Well, in Revelation, there is a dragon that is fighting against the people of God and that dragon is red, right? So he's a serpent. This is representative of Satan. So they said, okay, well, if this picture is red, then maybe Satan is red as well. That's probably where the tail comes from as well. In Revelation, it says that this dragon is gonna sweep his tail and sweep a third of the stars out of the sky. Again, symbolic language, but he's got a tail. Angels don't have tails, but now Satan's got a tail. That's probably where the tail comes from. What about the pitchfork? This is really weird right? Some people think it was, a, it was a trident from Poseidon. I honestly don't think that's the case. Other people think this is actually a dig at the French uh, who were introducing cutlery. It's a very weird story. Uh, but people who did not like enjoy, like enjoy cutlery, they were like going, ooh, that's an evil thing. So they actually were taking digs at the French by putting a fork in. You see, demonizing the other side has been something humanity has been doing forever. Quite literally, they were demonizing other people. All right, so that's where the fork uh, came in. Uh, and then we always kind of picture him in kind of like, a, like an underground torture chamber. You ever notice? sad. Uh, And Satan runs around as like king of hell. Uh, That is actually not true and not biblical. Satan doesn't rule hell. You might think, oh wait, now God rules in heaven. And so Satan rules in hell. Okay. God and, and Satan are not equal counterparts and never have been. These are not yin and yang, good and evil. God is sovereign in control. In hell, Satan himself is going to be tormented. When Jesus casts out demons out of people, they're like, please don't send us back. Do not put us back into the abyss. They are not in control running their own little torture operation for the Lord. That is not what scripture says at all. All right, so this entire picture that you and I have is really coming from things like Paradise Lost, Dante's Inferno, cartoons, art from the medieval age. It is not strictly coming from scripture. And we need to keep that in mind because for some of us, he says Adam, I can't believe in hell, but are we actually listening to the biblical Picture of what hell is. So let's answer some questions. What is hell? What are we talking about when we say hell? Well, hell is a place. It is not a state of mind. It is a literal place, just like heaven is a literal place. But this is one of the two destinations for mankind. So after the judgment, some of us will go to the resurrection of life, and the others of us will go to a resurrection of judgment. And after that judgment, we will go to hell. All right. So this is this is one of our eternal destinations where we will live. What is hell like? All right, instead of kind of turning to cartoons, let's turn to scripture and see what we have to say about hell. And here's the interesting thing you might not know. Jesus actually speaks a lot about hell. He actually speaks about hell more than he speaks about heaven. That is not because he's more interested in it and he is not a hellfire and brimstone preacher at all. But if you have the idea that hell just belongs to the super wrathful God in the Old Testament, but surely super nice Jesus in the New Testament doesn't talk about hell, you would be mistaken. There is no difference here. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Jesus actually speaks very clearly and distinctly about hell. So what is happening in hell? Well, there's a few different things that we can know for sure. Number one, there is fire. Look at Mark chapter nine. Mark nine forty three. Jesus is speaking. He says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. All right. So multiple times in this passage, Jesus talks about an unquenchable fire. He actually mentions it three times in this passage. Do note that this last line, verse 48, is actually a quote from Isaiah. It's a poetic part of Isaiah, but he's quoting it here where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so you get this eternal quality as well. But this is where we get the fire imagery. That did not come from Dante's Inferno, which, P.S., there are not nine rings of hell. That's straight up made up. Uh, But this Dante, that's not here. But there is fire. Secondly, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's go to Matthew 13, verse 40. Again, Jesus speaking. He says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, so we get fiery furnace, so fire's still there, but now we're going to add to it weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is interesting because these two terms really aren't talking about physical torment. You're talking about emotional or spiritual torment. Gnashing of teeth is more like anger, frustration. You know, there's a gnashing of teeth and then there's weeping, there's loss, there's sadness there. But you're talking about anguish. You're talking about emotional torment or spiritual torment, not strictly physical torment. One of the big problems I think we all have with hell is that we only think about the fire. You only think about the physical torment. Because it's not just physical, that's actually the least of your worries. There's this emotional torment. There's a third aspect though, and that is of darkness. 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 Here's Matthew chapter eight, verses 11 and 12. Again, Jesus speaking. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here you see weeping and gnashing of teeth return again. It's actually mentioned six different times in Matthew, that phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But now I get outer darkness. So when it comes to hell, this is an outer darkness that we're dealing with. So we've got fire, worms, we've got uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and now we have darkness. Here's the problem so far, we're trying to put all that all together. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Like, try to put all that into a literal place. It doesn't work. How can you have a place that's filled with fire like a fiery furnace and then have darkness at the same time? If you got fire, you got light. You can't have darkness. So you can't have a fiery furnace and you can't have darkness. Hell is also described as a bottomless pit. How can you be a bottomless pit and a fiery furnace at the same time? Furthermore, how can you get thrown into the fiery furnace and still have weeping and gnashing of teeth? If you get thrown into the fiery furnace, there's just, ah, that's it, Right? There's no weeping, there's no gnashing of teeth, there's no thinking, there's no stuff. There's just that physical torment. When you put all these things together, they don't actually fit literally. So what does that tell us? It means that these are flashes, these are impressions. In the same way with heaven, right? We're getting these flashes, these impressions, uh, like streets of gold and pearly gates. These are impressions of a greater reality. You're getting the same thing with hell. Hell is very much a literal place, but this is more than just literal what you're reading. Okay, these are impressions of a reality that you're going to live in. So terrifying to be sure, but it's more than just these literal things. So don't get hung up on trying to make this as strictly physical as possible. But that leads us to a strangely important question, and it is this, where is hell? Where is hell? Now, if I ask any kid in the room, they can give me the answer to this question, right? Where is hell? Do we know? There you go. It's down there, right? That's where hell is. Heaven is up there and hell is down there. I mean, this is just kind of what we think. We think of that, that, that underground area, but, but why? Heaven is clearly not in outer space, okay? It's different than that. What does that tell us about hell? Is hell actually underground somewhere? And the answer to that is no, So, where do we get this idea that hell is underground? Well, there's actually four different words that the Bible uses for hell. All right, one's Hebrew, and the rest are Greek. You have Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. Sheol, Hades, Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. Now, the first two and the last two are pretty much linked together. And so Sheol and Hades, that's Hebrew and Greek, those two places are basically saying the same thing, and the Gehenna and Tartarus are basically the same thing. Uh, But Sheol is also described as the underworld. In the Old Testament, this is what you see as hell. You don't see the the fire and brimstone. You don't see all the stuff that we just mentioned. Instead, you see the underworld, the grave, Sheol, or what the Greeks would call Hades, Hades. But here's the trick. In the Old Testament, everybody goes there. Everybody. Good, bad, ugly, doesn't matter. Everybody goes to Sheol. This is what David says. Who's going to praise you from Sheol? You got to save my life. Because he knows that's where he's going as well. It is not really a place of torment per se. It is a place of gloom and darkness. Uh, There's a mystery about it. But this is not like a final place of torment. In many ways, it's almost like a holding tank in some sense, Uh, but it it has this underworld tenor, and that's probably where you get this idea of Satan being under the ground. Also, Jesus ascended, so Satan must have descended, Uh, but we have this underground area. But Jesus uses the word Hades, which correlates to Sheol, but he also uses this other word, Gehenna. Now, Gehenna had just started to be used about a hundred years prior before he came in some of the apocalyptic literature. And Gehenna meant something different. Gehenna was not the underworld. Gehenna is this place of fire and torment. Specifically, it referred to the Valley of Hinnom. That's where you get this name. And the Valley of Hinnom was right outside of Jerusalem. And this is where everybody in Jerusalem would burn their trash. So you can imagine a big city like Jerusalem that produced a lot of trash. Well, they didn't have landfills back there. They would just go and burn their trash at Gehenna. So whenever you look towards the Valley of Hinnom, towards Gehenna, you saw this this smoke rising towards heaven and that fire never went out. It burned day and night. They were always burning things over there. It is this unquenchable, unending fire. And the smoke rises to heaven. That is Gehenna. So you get this picture of the unquenching fire. The worm does not die. die. The fire is not quenched. Gehenna is that picture of that. But Gehenna has a much darker history attached to it. You see some terrible things that happen in the Valley of Hinnom. Over Israel's past, some of the worst atrocities that Israel had committed had happened in the valley of Hinnom. Look at this in Second Chronicles, chapter 28, verses two and three. It says, but Ahaz walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. All right, this is shocking and terrifying. A king of Israel, instead of worshiping in the temple, is worshiping idols outside of the city. But then it gets worse. He's not just worshiping idols. He is doing child sacrifice with his own children in the Valley of Hinnom. This is an abomination to the Lord. This is the worst kind of idolatry. And it happens over and over again. Here's Jeremiah in a different place. Chapter 32, verses 34 and 35 God says, they set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built high places of Baal, of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moleg, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. What is happening in the valley of Hinnom is the exact opposite of what God intends. It is idolatry, it is sin, it is destruction. It is not bringing life. It is bringing death. It is an abomination to the Lord. Gehenna is not simply the place where a fire goes up for heaven. Gehenna is a place where God's will and ways are completely ignored and rejected. Where sin runs amok. Where abominations occur. This is the moral character and quality of Gehenna. So it is not simply a place of physical torment. This is a place that is spiritually opposed to God and his ways. So we need to recognize that where the valley of Hinnom is, it is outside of Jerusalem. Instead of hell being underneath us, this is probably a better way of understanding hell. Hell is not underground. Hell is outside of the kingdom. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It was a picture a culmination of what God had been doing from the very beginning. Now God's presence would dwell with his people in a city where everyone would live in the Lord and with one another. There would be love. There would be life. It would be a society as God has intended it. This is the kingdom of God. God now with, dwelling with his people. Okay. Hell is outside of that. Hell is excluded from that. Hell is outside the city. It is away from the presence of God. If the defining mark of heaven is the presence of God, then the defining mark of hell is his absence. If the defining mark of heaven is that I'm living in a relationship with God, I live in love with the Lord, then the defining mark of hell is that I am not in relationship with the Lord. I have rejected relationship with the Lord. Hell is outside. It is away from God and his kingdom. And in our future, all of us are going to live in one of those places or the other. By our own choice, we are going to choose whether we live in one of those places or the other. So this is what the Lord actually tells us about hell. This is what he is telling us about this place. And so for us as believers, we don't simply believe that God loves us here on earth, that we are going to live in him forever. And if we believe in heaven, then we must also believe in hell. Now, look, that might be a sticking point for you. You might say, Adam, I like heaven. I can believe in heaven. I just don't want to believe in hell. Can I do that? No, that's not allowed. That's not legal. It doesn't even make any sense. Even though it might be uncomfortable and even though this might be a sticking point for you, it is not right for us to say, Adam, I think I can believe in heaven, but but I'm just going to, I'm going to ignore hell. I don't want to think about hell. I cannot believe that God would even allow, much less force or, or choose to put anybody in some sort of eternal punishment. I can't countenance it. And so I just refuse to believe that. And I understand the heart where that comes from. I understand why we might try to make that decision, but that's actually not possible for us as believers because if you and I refuse to believe in hell, we're really rejecting everything that that God is about. Here's why. There's three things that we need to recognize. If I refuse to believe in hell, three things are happening. Number one, we are defaming God's character. We are defaming God's character. We say, well, why would that be? Well, let's imagine when people say, Adam, I just cannot believe in hell. And when some of us say that, what are we really saying? Adam, I just cannot countenance the idea that somebody would suffer eternally. Adam, I can't bear the thought of even one person, regardless of how bad they were. I can't think of of even just one person having to suffer that for eternity. And so if that's what you're going to make me believe to be a Christian, then I just can't do that. Here's what we're actually saying. I just think I'm more merciful than God is. I think I'm actually more merciful than God is because I can't countenance that. So if God can, not clearly I'm just more merciful than he is. And nothing could be more patently absurd, can it? Let's think about who's telling us this. Jesus isn't gleeful about hell. He tells us about its reality. But please don't miss this. There has never been anybody more gracious than Jesus Christ. There has never been anybody who loved us more than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus who lays aside his glory. We offer him nothing. We can give nothing to him. And instead of getting what he deserves, he lays aside all his glory to come down to us, to come down to a people who will reject him. He will come to his own people and they will, they will say terrible things about him. They will stab him in the back. They will, they, will, they will trump him up on false charges until ultimately these very people will brutally beat him and murder him. Jesus knows this is coming and comes anyway. This is Jesus who tells us to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. This is Jesus who tells us that we need to forgive 70 times 7. This is Jesus who says, listen, even though you can offer nothing to me and what you deserve is damnation, here's what I'm going to give you instead. I'm going to take all of your punishment and let it fall on me. I want to take from you all of the wrath of God and I just want to give you by my grace perfection that I have earned and rightly deserve. I just want to give it to you as a gift. There is no one more gracious than Jesus Christ. And look at his heart. Here's second Peter chapter three, verse nine. Listen to this. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So this is the heart of God. God's heart is that all would come to salvation. That's his desire. He he says, listen, I'm holding off the wrath. I'm holding off. I'm offering as much time as possible. I'm being as patient as possible because his desire would be for all people to come to knowledge of salvation. This is his heart for us. Let us not say anything as stupefyingly arrogant that we are more gracious than the Lord is because there's not a person in this room or in this world Who has sacrificed more in love than our Savior? There is not anyone in this universe who has forgiven more evil things against himself than our Savior. There's no one who has borne more burdens, our burdens, to a deeper degree of pain and hurt to himself than our Savior. No one. God's heart is that all would come to a knowledge of repentance. And so hear me when I say this, if anybody can be saved, they will be. If you're worried about people, just please understand, if anyone can be saved, they will be. They will. That is not universalism. But if anybody can be saved, we have a God who is seeking after us, who is chasing after us, who is drawing us, who is wooing us. If anybody can be saved, they will be. Here's the question, though: will they? See, here's the second thing we have to understand. If we don't believe in hell, we're defaming God's character. Also, if we don't believe in hell, we're ignoring free will. We're ignoring free will. You see, God has given us this amazing creation. We learned this a couple weeks ago that we are made in the very image of God. We are different from animals. We're different from angels. Did you know that? Did you know that we have the ability to have a communion with God that the angels are jealous of, that they will never have? God calls us his sons and daughters. He doesn't say that about his angelic messengers. He says that about us. He has opened up a doorway for us to have a relationship with the Lord. But please understand, it's a love relationship and love can't be forced. God's not gonna force us to be his children. You can't force someone to love you. If you do, it's not love. If God's tactic is simply this, hey, get saved or I'll kill you. Okay, that's not love. That's the act of a Muslim terrorist. Isn't it? Convert or I kill you. Well, I can say whatever you want. It's not going to change my heart. Okay, God's not after outward obedience. He's after the heart. He wants us to love him. Okay, love cannot be forced. And so he has given us this glorious ability to choose. Adam and Eve did not have to make the choice that they made. Did you know that? This could have gone differently. They were not set up to fail. They could have made a different choice. They didn't, but they could have. God has given us this ability to enter into a relationship with him. It is glorious and it is going to lead a life in him eternally and forevermore. But along with this glorious opportunity comes danger because it means it's oppor- it, there's an opportunity to reject it as well. Because we have this ability to commune with the Lord, there's also an ability to reject that, commun- that communion and suffer the consequences. It is a terrible gift that the Lord has given to us. And when you and I don't believe in hell, we're basically rejecting free will as if our actions just don't matter at all. C.S. Lewis explores this in his book, The Great Divorce. He says it this way He says, At the end of time, there's only going to be two types of people. There's going to be people who say to the Lord, Thy will be done you are the king. Thy will be done. I have surrendered to you. Uh, You you saved me, you forgave me, but but thy will be done. I want to live in the place where your will and your ways are supreme. I want to live in your presence forever. Thy will be done. People will say to God, thy will be done or God will say to them, thy will be done. Thy will be done because if you and I refuse to accept the Lord. We refuse his presence. We don't want to live in the place where his will and ways are supreme. We want to be on our own. We want to stand on our own two feet. If you and I choose to be in a place outside of the presence of God, then God could do the most terrible thing he could possibly do to you. He could give you what you want. And if you demand to be in this place, you can, it's called hell. Lewis says it this way. He says, all who are in hell, choose it. He said this to Adam as dumb. Who would choose to be in hell? Uh, we do all the time. All the time. Do you remember John three sixteen? We looked at this in the gospel a few weeks ago. You probably remember it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He's offering eternal life to anybody. You don't have to earn it. It's just a gift that God gives to us. You can have eternal life with me in the new Jerusalem forever. But do you know what he says just a couple verses later? Look at this. Here's John 3, 16, 19, same paragraph, same thing Jesus is saying. Listen to what he said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things, hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his work should be exposed. We choose hell all the time. Well, we look at God and say, God, thanks, but no thanks. Um, It'd be great if you love me, but here's the deal. I got to have things on my own terms. And so here's the thing. If you demand to walk into heaven on your own two feet, if you demand to be able to say, I deserve to be in heaven more than those other people, If you demand to hang on to your sin, if you demand to hang on to your idolatry, this thing you say, I can't live life without this thing, it's this person, it's this hobby, it's this substance, it's this thing. If I can't have this, I can't possibly go there. This is the only thing that life worth makes life worth living. If you demand to say, nobody gets to tell me what to do. I create my own identity. I define for myself who I am. I alone am unto myself. If you demand to stay in this spot, you can't. But there's consequences when you and I choose to live outside of the presence of God. It is called hell. Can you imagine living in a society where everyone does what what is right in their own eyes and you have sucked all the good out of it? Where everybody visits hell upon one another again and again. You're now beginning just to taste the beginnings of what hell is actually like. If you say, I don't want to believe in heaven, but I don't want to believe in hell, then what you're doing is you were ignoring free will. We are ignoring what God has offered to us. But that leads to the third thing. If you and I refuse to believe in hell, it means that we ignore evil. We ignore evil. See, I wonder if you and I really understand the depth and the magnitude of our sin. Like we know that there's bad things in the world, right? We understand that. Yeah, the world's broken. The world's not great. But the world's not super terrible. There's bad things in the world. We understand sin, but remember what we learned a few weeks ago about sin. We said the wages of sin is death, but but the real danger of sin is this is that it it breaks relationship. Sin is like is like an acid. If you pour it on something, it is corrosive, it is aggressive, it is destructive. It can't help but do these things. All sin is corrosive, aggressive, and destructive. It's like cancer. There's no such thing as a good cancer. At the very least, you have to quarantine it. At best, you remove it. But cancer is trying to kill its host. That's what it's doing. There's no good version of this. Just like there's no good version of sin. And so when you and I say, I just want a little bit of sin in my life, we're asking for death. We're asking for corrosion. We're asking for destruction of all relationships. And God says, none of these things are going to be in my world. You see, we live in a, in, a, in a messed up world, do we not? We probably need to take a moment, especially right before Thanksgiving, uh, just to give the Lord thanks for the life that you and I live. We live in an amazing country where you're afforded incredible blessings, are we not? And especially even right here in this area, more even so than other people in our country, we have ridiculous blessings that have been bestowed on the people in this area. But we live in a broken, messed up world. And I think for many of us, we've just kind of hidden ourselves from a lot of that. Please don't fool yourself about the destructive capacity of sin in this world. There's a guy named Gary Hogan. He's the president of International Justice Mission. It's an organization that works all over the planet trying to step in to help people uh, who are oppressed, who are being trafficked, uh, who cannot fight for themselves. They try to stand up and go and and just help find justice for people. And he wrote a book uh, a little while back called The Locust Effect. As I began reading this book, he talks about all the things that are going on in our world right now and the places where IJM is trying to step in and help different people. And he tells horrific stories about women and children who are being trafficked for a sex slave trade. And the atrocities that are visited upon children and women multiple times a day, all over the planet, and that is happening right now. Of people trapped in in places with corrupt governments, They don't have enough money for the bribes, which means they're not going to get any justice, which means these people are simply going to abuse them uh, and keep them in poverty, and there's no way for them to get out of that poverty. They're just going to have the legal system work against them their entire life. They will live completely oppressed, and they'll never get out of it unless somebody steps in to try to help with some other power than what they can have. He talks about the violence that is visited upon people, not just in wars, but in other places where, again, where the the police forces are corrupt and they're not actually going to, they're going to be a part of the problem. They're not going to be the the solution and they're going to actually enable this violence instead of stopping this violence. And people have zero power to stop it. And they're trying to, to step in to help in these different situations. Can I make a confession to you? I couldn't finish the book. I literally had to turn it off because this wasn't a horror movie. It was real life. It's happening right now in our world, in this world, by people like us, humans. That's what's happening in the broken, dark world that you and I live in. Now, imagine that any of those atrocities were happening to your child. And imagine how you would feel. If that kind of trafficking or oppression or violence was happening to your child, how would you feel? And how do you feel about a parent who sees that happen to their child and just says, it's fine, we'll work it out. Don't worry about it. We'll just, hey, let's let everybody in. It'll all be cool. Hey, hey no need for justice. We're good. Yeah, I know it was terrible and it was life-altering and just evil, but, but don't worry about it. It's fine. I would begin to doubt the love of that parent for their child. If you can look at injustice like that and just turn away. And say, it does not matter. God says, these very things are happening to my children. These things are happening in my world. How could he not react in justice? If he's a God of love at all, if you believe that God is love, how could he not react to take care of the injustice in this world? When we say, Adam, I could not allow that injustice to happen to somebody. Well, what happens when it's happening to millions of people? God said there's going to have to be justice. There's going to have to be a judgment for these things. I cannot, as a righteous God and as a loving father, turn away from these things. Therefore, there's going to be justice here. It is going to have to be done. There is going to be a hell because, yes, there are consequences for the evil that has been visited upon us. Now, let's stop for a moment and get real, real specific um, because this is the point where some people uh, get real excited about hell. Isn't that weird? You ever met people like that? who get real excited about talking about hell and excited the hellfire is going to get here. Hellfire is hot, hot, hot. Liars go to hell. I mean, they, they just get real excited about hell. This is where you get the hellfire and brimstone preachers and the people with their veins popping out and all this stuff. And they just love to talk about judgment. Anybody who gets super excited talking about hell, you should second guess every single thing they say. Everything you don't see Jesus using hell to scare people into heaven, you notice that John the Baptist gets close once, but you never see Jesus following suit, he never does this. We see here's the reason why you and I can't get excited about hell or about the justice that's going to be visited upon the world because that evil is not just out there in the world, it's in us too. Let me show you a terrifying passage from the Sermon on the Mount, you've probably read it before. I want you to notice where hell comes up in this passage. Jesus says, Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everybody who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus comes onto the scene. And he says, for all the murderers and the adulterers, you guys know that that's wrong, right? And everybody says, of course we do. Yes, those people clearly deserve judgment. Jesus says, well, I'm not just here to deal with the murderers and the adulterers. I'm here to deal with anybody who had the desires for those things. So anybody who is angry or lustful, I'm coming for you too. And that is terrifying because you know who that is? That's me. And that's you. And it's all of us. God is much more serious about rooting out sin than we are. Before we condemn God for the judgments that he makes, just recognize he is much more interested in weeding out sin than we are. And he says, look, this is coming. That judgment is coming. And how does God react to us in this? To sinful people who have rejected relationship with him, does he come with his sword raised in the air? No. He comes as a carpenter riding on a donkey. He comes as a day laborer and he comes saying, I come to offer you life, I come to offer you forgiveness. I have come all of this way to tell you that I love you and that in me, you can have salvation. In me, you can have eternal life. In me, you can have the life that you were made for from the beginning and I'm gonna live in you, with you forever. You can have this life and you don't even have to earn it. I'm gonna give this as a gift of grace to you. He doesn't come initially in judgment. No, he comes in grace. He gives us himself and then offers it to us as a gift. Would you receive the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is how he comes to us. The only final question remaining is, if that's how God comes to you, how will you receive him? Will you demand to face judgment day on your own terms? Or if offered the gift of salvation from Jesus Christ, would we look at him and say, God, I'm so tired of trying to pretend that I'm in control. I see the righteousness of your judgment, but God, I can't help you. And so Lord, I just, I, I surrender. God, you're right and I'm wrong. You're king and I'm not. God, I surrender. I just need help. And let the arms of a loving father sweep you up into a life that is everlasting. A life we don't deserve, but a life that is given for you. Anybody who calls on the name of the Lord can and will be saved. Amen. We're all going to live forever, but you get to choose where. So, do this one. Bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. With heads bowed and eyes closed, look, this is an uncomfortable question to talk about. It's terrifying, it's not easy to think about. There's a lot of questions that come attached to it. But ignoring it's not really an option. You see, God's offering us life and we need it. He's offering forgiveness and we need it. He loves you and we need that. The question is, how are you going to react to him? Are you going to hang on to your own pride? Are you going to hang on to your own abilities? Are you going to hang on to your own idols? Are you going to demand things on your own terms? Because you can. There are terrible consequences attached to that but you don't have to. The Lord saw all of that and instead comes in grace and glory and offers himself to you. He won't force you. He won't make you, but he will offer. And anybody who wants to put their faith and trust in him, no matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been, you will not be turned away. You don't have to make it up to him you don't have to keep earning your spot. You just have to receive it in love. I say, God, I trust you. I surrender to you. So if you're here today and you say, Adam, I, I know a lot about church and I know a lot about religion, but I've never had a personal relationship with Jesus. Maybe today is the day you do that. Put your faith in him right now. Don't wait for me or anybody else. Just, just tell him from your heart, God, I need you. I don't just want to try hard and go to church. Lord, I need you. I want to live with you forever. Tell him, surrender, ask for forgiveness and receive it. If you're afraid that you've done too much, if you're too ashamed, don't be so ashamed that you stay away from the Lord. He has never turned away anybody who has called on his name ever. And you won't be the first. So just call out to him and say, God, I need you. I see where I'm heading, what I have created. God, I need you. I want to live in your presence forever. I just accept it. Just accept it. By faith, accept it. And let him bring that life to you. So Father, help us. Every one of us here, Lord, not a one of us here deserves life in you. We don't deserve your cross. We don't deserve salvation. And yet you've offered it. Lord, would you help us to receive that life today? For anybody here, Lord, who does not know you, would you Open their eyes, give them ears to hear that today they might truly hear it and understand that you mean this. There's real life in you and they can have it. God, draw them to yourself today. Father, may no one miss out on the grace that is offered. May no one suffer needlessly. May we all find our life in you and give you thanks and praise for it. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Stand up with me if you will. We're gonna sing a song of surrender. And you have an opportunity to sing this back to the Lord and say, God, I give you my surrender. If you want to come and pray at the altar, you can. You want to come and pray with me, you can. If you want to pray for somebody that you know who needs that salvation, you can. But let's again offer up our surrender to the God who gave his life to us.